with if that. nobody can agree on anything, then then there's not a new bunch of new laws being passed. I disagree with that. Wait, I'm just saying that to disagree. But you're right. We don't have a bunch of new laws being passed at the moment because everyone disagrees on everything, which is kind of nice. And one of the things to bear in mind from a practical point of view about the laws is the Tax Reduction Act that was passed under the Trump administration when the Republicans had control of Congress and they reduced your taxes. And you probably feel pretty good about that. Mm -hmm. Raised the deficit substantially, but they reduced your taxes. Um, it expires in 2020 at the end of 2025. That's right. For not for the corporate side, just for the personal income tax side. Yeah. So your personal income taxes will jump back up in 2026 and whoever is, whatever party is in the presidency at that point, don't blame them. Well, I guess if it's Republicans, you could blame them because they're the ones who Whoa. passed well, it and you, said it was going to rise. You're being unrealistic here. We need to be able to blame people. I, I want to be able to blame the Chicago Bulls for inflation. So I'm going to, it makes me feel I better. I think they're, they're, they're bullish on inflation, yes. Yeah, yeah. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. He'll spill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. And uh, we are, now that we've said our, our names, we always have this little blank. What, what are we supposed to do again? Now, what are we supposed to do now? We, we're supposed to do some kind of a program here on the economy. This is The Personal Wealth Coach. And hopefully today we'll be enlightening you with things about finance or maybe more likely befuddling you with the complexity of the world that we live in. Uh, hopefully can, we can enlighten more than befuddle, but often what we wind up with is befuddle lightenment there. So beflight, it's beflightenment. Beflightenment. Um, right. So before we get started, though, we have to disclose some things. The personal wealth coach is not just the name of this radio program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Why are we telling you that? Because we fall under some different regulations. Uh, it's registered with the SEC as an investment advisory firm. That means fiduciary advice given and so on. We don't give fiduciary advice on the air. We can't. It's not private. We don't know all of you. Uh, we can't custom tailor our advice to you. Even if you're sending us an email, it wouldn't be private for us to answer it on the air. So we give educational information while we're on here. And I think that's pretty important to know. Um, just because the SEC is who the firm registers with to be a fiduciary doesn't mean that the SEC likes us or dislikes us. It doesn't imply that the SEC has any feelings at all. In fact, I don't think they have feelings. I think they're pretty unfeeling out there. They are a government agency. It's, it's, if it's not in triplicate, it doesn't exist. I think they feel untrusting. Yes. And that's their role. I mean, they're supposed to be untrusting. So right. we got we to say that, and it's important for you to understand. And now, you're, would, would you deem to tell us the next uh, The information that we use in this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Or, or especially unsaid information. The uh -huh. accuracy and completeness of unsaid information is strictly a not guaranteed. 
I will guarantee that unsaid information has not been said. Oh, wow. I see what you did there. It is not complete. Right. Hmm. I will guarantee the incompleteness of unsaid information. But what about if we type it? On the radio? Yeah, it's a very, very new new media. It's uh, This is going to be uh, Web 4.0. Oh, I yeah. thought it was... It's called Web, the, it's Web actually X. moving backwards. It's it's the telegraph. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, or teletype. Yeah. So so we could do it. Um we also don't pay for this time on the station. We are also not paid for the time. This is not a paid commercial program. Uh the firm advertises about the radio program, but that's it. Uh the studio also advertises about the radio program. There is no quid pro quo, Senator. In fact, I think if we said we were going to stop doing the radio program, um, I don't know that it would go over so well at the studio. I think they would not like that um, for mm. some reason. I might be wrong. I mean, I haven't talked to them about it in a long time. So uh, I think they like us still. I'm going to show some, or, or show. I'm going to show this on the radio. See, right here. Look to the left and over to the right and right in the middle. Yes, very nice. Thank you for looking at that. Um, the areas of the economy that have had, as far as pay goes, payroll, the greatest amount of inflation are two areas. Hospitality, that's hotels, uh, restaurants, that sort of thing, and construction. Fifteen years ago, we had a great radio episode where we talked about what would happen if uh, illegal immigration were completely done away with or done away with to the extent that we weren't using them for a major portion of our industries. And we said we would expect to see incredible inflation in hospitality and in residential real estate and commercial real estate. Now, is that saying that illegal immigration is something that we want or any of that? No, people will try to make an opinion out of what we just said there. The reality is supply and demand. Pre-Great Recession, for those of you that don't remember the Great Recession, this was the housing and insurance collapse, the financial implosion that took place in 2008-2009, where a lot of people's houses became worth a lot less than they owed on it. Um, the uh, number of bankruptcies was incredibly high. There were all kinds of scandals like who owns this mortgage that's about to get foreclosed on? Who gets to sign for it because it's now owned by so many different companies in parts that nobody has the authority to sign the foreclosure, thus the robo-signing scandals and so on. When, when we look at, at uh, I'm kind of trying to follow my chain of thought back here. Let's get us all lined we're up. We're following it. We're following a chain. Yes, follow the chain. It's a supply chain. Uh, it's thought, and so the, the supply is rather limited on my thoughts. Um, uh, when we look at where the prices went up, hospitality and uh, construction, during the Great Recession, well, let's, let's go back a step, a step bef before the Great Recession. When you went to a job site, a construction site, the likelihood was that a large percentage of people working on any construction job site was going to be illegal. This was known. It's, there's numbers on it. There, I mean, it was just we didn't have enough border patrol to go to every job site and arrest everybody. We had like 11 million people here illegally. It was a big deal. After the recession hit and the price on houses dropped, construction came to a screeching halt. And a lot of those illegals went home 
And if you look at the demographics of those that illegal immigrant population, they were semi-skilled masons, framers, um, uh, foundation people, sometimes carpenters. They were typically in their 40s in the age area. So they left. There was this, and we talked about it at the time, that we, we had a massive ex-migration of illegals. We went from somewhere around 11 million illegals in the country to like 4 million. And we talked about, hey, we didn't even change the laws. What happened there? Well, they, what happened was we stopped paying them. We stopped going on as many vacations. So hospitality wasn't hiring illegals to come and clean the room. And we stopped building houses because we had too many houses. So we weren't hiring illegals to build the houses. Come forward 10 years to 2018 or so. And we have um, construction starting to come back up. Hospitality starting to come back up. We didn't have that migrant force come back into the country illegal. We still have illegals, but they're coming for different reasons. They're asylum seekers and Venezuela's collapse and... Um, and Haiti's just a bad place to be, and Cuba's a bad place to be, so we'd rather be in the United States. These are unskilled workers that have no idea what they're going to do when, they're get, when they get here. They're not sending money back to their home because their home doesn't have the capability of receiving money right now. Postage doesn't work. Wires don't work. You just can't get money home, basically, to Haiti and Venezuela. Very different migrant population. Our inflation rate in hospitality and in construction is directly related to that. We still don't have enough houses, but the workforce for the houses is not there, which is why we see this massive, people are trying, even right now, where housing starts are dropping drastically because interest rates are so high on mortgages. It's still nearly impossible to get a work crew to come out to your house to work on something in a short period of time. Why? Because there's just not enough of them for the people that have a demand for them. So you see, we see these prices going up. Is there a solution to it? This is something eventually people ask because it sounds like we're saying illegal immigration is a good idea. It isn't. A good immigration policy is a good idea. Having laws that make sense. I think both political parties completely agree at this point that the immigration laws are broken. I don't think there's anybody right now anywhere that says, no, immigration's fine. Uh, one side really wants to open up the borders. The other side wants to close up the borders. But both of them agree that the existing laws are broken. Okay. If we approach this from an economic perspective of we have a demand for cheap labor that isn't being met with our own population. If you say, hey, um, immigration uh, department, uh, we have had an ad in all of the local papers on Craigslist and in every place that we can put an ad for people to come and pick our tomatoes for the last six weeks. And we're coming up on harvest time. We're about to lose a bunch of tomatoes. We would like to hire from the new visa program. And they would say, all right, there are a certain number of people that have already signed up for this visa program. They've already had their background checks done. You may hire from this group. However, they are linked to your employment. Should you no longer employ them, you have to pay to remove them back to their country of origin. That's, that's a feasible program. That's a program that we've already got sort of in the, in the high skill area where somebody with a PhD in 
um, chemistry or nuclear physics can come to the United States under like an H-1B visa. And we say this is, we've offered the job for nine months now and nobody's filling the job here. We need from we need one from this group of people that are trying to get to the United States. That's reasonable because then you've got all the vetting, you've got all the controls in place to say this is what's going on. Now, neither side of the political spectrum really likes that because the Republicans say, well, you're for sure locking in that no American is going to have that job henceforth and forever. And the Democrats are saying, well, what about all the asylum seekers and the people that just want to come here because it's a really bad place to live otherwise? Well, I'm sorry, guys, nobody's going to be happy. (laughs) The reality is that if we want to control uh, labor inflation, one area that's easily able to be done, if it were easy, it isn't easy, this political logjam is going to be there for probably another decade, we would open up the unskilled labor market to some illegals that would become legal. Now, is that amnesty? Is that a law? Are they already here? See, then then you get into the sticky wicket stuff where this is just, nobody can agree on anything. Um, this is a great example, you know, daylight savings time. Earlier this year, we talked about this on the radio, the Senate unanimously voted to do away with daylight savings time. And then it got to Congress And Congress said, oh, yeah, this is great. So it got to the House of Representatives. Senate's part of Congress. It gets to the House of Representatives and they say, yes, we're going to get rid of daylight savings time. But they can't agree on where to freeze it. Is it the forward number or the fallback number? Is it the spring forward number? We keep it on that. Or is it the fallback number and we keep it on that? Well, I don't like that one. I I like the other one better. So we're in an absolute logjam. Can't decide. We both agree Everybody agrees, get together in a room, nobody likes daylight savings time, there's all kinds of health problems with it, there's all, all kinds of issues that we've notified everyone about, but we cannot agree as to whether or not it's the forward time or the back time, and so we're not going to change it. Um, that, that is the microcosm of American politics and how it interferes with the economy. There you go. I get this. This is going to be unpopular, what I'm about to say, because polarization is such a big part of our political world right now uh, that people are having trouble seeing a common ground. If you look at the economic policies of Trump and the economic policies of Biden, there's really not a lot of difference. And I know, I know people say, well, what they talk about is different. But let's, let's go and see what actually happened. Okay, we had a big tax cut under Trump. Biden has not said let's reverse that. We had a big trade war under Trump. Biden has continued it. And, and, and raised it and increased it. Right. In certain areas, there's more of a trade war going on now than was then. Um, and, and I know this is difficult because people like to find the uncommon ground. Where are they different? Well, the infrastructure bill. What the focus of infrastructure would be how much green energy would be included in the infrastructure bill wound up being about 20% of one package. So if we add the trade war and we look at uh, the entirety of the economic uh, packages from both presidents, their difference is about 5% monetarily. 5% is where this uncommon ground is of the total package of stimulus and where it's being focused and so on. 
The Inflation Reduction Act is not an Inflation Reduction Act. There's a bunch of infrastructure in there, and there's a bunch of other stuff in there. So what it's called is kind of irrelevant. But uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, lowering corporate income tax rates permanently, lowering personal income taxes until 2026, Biden's not saying, hey, let's reverse that. He's not saying that. You don't hear that in the campaign right now, we have to tax corporations more. That's not part of the conversation. And I know this is an unpopular approach to say, where are they different? Where are they the same? The, the USMCA, the, the new agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States for free trade. I read the, the NAFTA, uh, and uh, that's the North American Free Trade Agreement, and I read the USMCA. And the difference between the two is minuscule. So much of the disagreement is purely verbal with no action behind it. Much of the problem with free trade zone was really just whose name was on it. And that's true in politics, no matter who's in charge. So what are some things that Biden has done that are really different? Well, the green energy thing, the infrastructure on batteries, the embracing of green energy. But if you look at the uh, new rigs made in the first, in, in Trump's administration and Biden's administration. Oil rigs. You're talking oil, about oil rigs. rigs. Oil yeah. rigs. There have been more under Biden. Does that mean Biden is responsible for pushing the oil industry into greater growth? No, because the president doesn't tell Exxon to spend money on drilling. They don't tell the frackers to get out there and frack some more. They could. Actually, they could try. Actually, they have. They, but, Biden has asked them to But to But the reality is that, that the, they're going to make the decision at the corporate level based on profitability. Uh, so it's really nice to be able to point at whomever's in charge and saying yeah, this is a, a Biden uh, problem or a Trump problem. But the reality is that that's just politics. It really has less to do with the day-to-day -day running of a business than people believe. If, if you're an extreme political believer and you have a small business, you recognize that your small business really isn't massively affected by the difference between Trump and Biden. Now, oil prices went up. Well, we, there's lots of reasons why oil prices went up, and it certainly wasn't due to suddenly Biden coming into office and taking down a bunch of the oil industry. The, the invasion of Ukraine was really a clear indicator there. Uh, and if you disagree with that and you say it's Biden, that's you're, you're right. And I'm not telling you not to blame Biden. I really am not. You're allowed to. It's, it's a very nice cathartic behavior to say they're the reason why this happened. But it's not an adult decision-making process. Well, John had a question. A good one. Our inquisitor. Uh, he wanted to know what is dispersion, dispersion strategy and how risky. Okay. Yeah. Um, he's got an article in the Wall Street Journal. The headline is where six investors think the markets are going. Uh, and the investors in question are not people that sit at home and day trade. These are people that run in rather large institutions, nine plus billion dollars, things like that. And one of them is quoted as, uh, it, it, his name is Mr. Britton. Um, 
uh, as talking about uh, he's particularly optimistic about dispersion strategy designed to profit from volatility. And uh, which means he probably doesn't understand it. Yeah, probably. Um, dispersion and, and John saying, what is it and how risky is it? We have talked in the past about how mutual funds are priced at the end of the day because uh, the, the, all of the stock holdings of the mutual fund have to be looked at what's the price on there and then add them all up to the net asset value. But then you have an ETF, which is like a mutual fund that's trading in the middle of the day, all through the day. And we've talked in the past about how the price of the ETF can change, can move away from the total price of everything added up in the portfolio so that it's getting its own price. It's kind of like when you say, I'm a farmer, I want to sell my crop. You're going to get a different price for it if you say, I'm going to sell it in a month than you if you're selling it right now. It's the same crop, but you have a different price based on time. In an ETF, you can have a different price based on time throughout the day. Dispersion is taking that to the next level because you can buy options on an index, kind of like an exchange-traded fund is usually an index. Options on indexes disperse more rapidly from the prices of the underlying stocks inside it. So if you think an index is a bunch of stocks and the prices of those stocks, the, what percentage of the index they are, they should all add up to the same number as the index. Well, they don't during ongoing trading. They disperse from each other. And if you figure out which ones are dispersing the most, so say this stock represents 1% of the index, but during the day, it might be worth up to 1.2% of the index, even though nothing's changed, just the inefficiency of the trading. That's what dispersion strategy is. There's a, there's a lot of math in it. It's not difficult math, but when you put it all together, it looks scary. It's basically saying, what's the correlation between a stock and its index as far as the proper weighting of it and how much it spreads back and forth. And uh, Dr. Uh, Merton at uh, University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, uh, who I spent some time with during my learning stages, he's a Nobel Prize winner, but he's also responsible for something called the Asian contagion, where the value of all of the Asian currencies minus the um, yuan um, had a complete collapse in 1998. Was it, was it minus the yuan or minus the ruble? Uh, the ruble collapsed. The yuan was the only one that stayed stable. So the, the Thai okay. bot, the, all, all, basically every currency in Asia minus China had a near-death experience oh, because yeah, of a hedge right. fund movement. Uh, and his definition is very similar to dispersion strategy with options, very much. It was instead of an index, it's a basket of currencies. They used the same math. It was very similar. And his definition for it said to me verbally was, I was picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. And for a long time, I picked up a lot of pennies, but my tie was hanging a bit long and I got caught under the steamroller. And all it took was one catch of the tie to get rid of all of the pennies. And that's what we talk about when we talk about dispersion strategy. The good news on that is that not a lot of people can do it. It's kind of the definition of a quant fund or a quant, quant trading fund. The second question that he had, the second question, which is important, is it risky? How risky is it? It's very risky. 
And the reason it's very risky is it's an inefficiency in the market that you've just seen published in the Wall Street Journal. And by the time these tiny inefficiencies that people are taking advantage of go out of the academic papers and into the front page or, or the readable pages of the Wall Street Journal, historically, shortly thereafter, they suddenly reverse because people says, oh, people are making money doing this thing. And a lot of people start doing it. And it causes it to suddenly and violently reverse. Yeah. If, and so if, I wouldn't want to be within 10 miles of a dispersion. Right. Especially after it's been published in the, in the Wall Street Journal. Um, I have a, a another subject on the petroleum side of things. Um, off the coast of Germany, uh, there are a large number of tankers sitting full, just hanging out at anchor. And they're, the act of them existing is raising the price of natural gas for everyone. Well, what are they doing? Storing natural gas. Um, I think anybody that's been following what's happening in Europe after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has been saying they're going to have to have some serious energy rationing during the winter. What are they going to do? And the Europeans have been able to acquire enough natural gas that they're thinking they will not have to do draconian rationing during the winter. Well, why? Well, because a lot of empty tankers were already out there. And I think I mentioned this back in May when, we, when I went to Corpus Christi and watched the natural gas tankers just all lined up and flowing in and out of the port. I was back there again in October. And the traffic is much, much lighter. I'm not sure what I expected, but I didn't expect that much lowered traffic because they still are going to need liquid natural gas out there. What, what's going on in Europe if we're not... Well, we don't have enough empty tankers anymore. All these empty tankers that have been porting the natural gas over to Europe, a lot of them are sitting full as a reserve because there's not a pipe that goes from the United States to Europe. That would be a very long pipe across the Atlantic. So we've got tankers that are sitting there, which is causing liquid natural gas to be hard to get in other places like China. Well, China has a lower demand and they're getting a lot of that lower demand directly from Russia because other people aren't. But they're getting it in a very weird way because the pipes that go from Russia to China are very limited compared to the pipes that go from Russia to Europe. So they're using tank trucks to drive back and forth between China and Russia with their liquid natural gas. It's just fascinating watching the, the supply chain issues here. So this, this supply chain issue of all of the chains are changing. The ones that went from Russia to Europe are being replaced by ones from Norway to Europe and from the United States to Europe. Something else that's happened over the past week in Norway is the Norwegian military has just gone on extremely high alert. And the United States and the United Kingdom are sending big chunks of our fleet up to just hang around the rigs, the Norwegian rig, rigs that are now the number one source of natural gas for Europe. It used to be Russia. So these big offshore rigs, why, why the sudden call-up? Because a whole bunch of Russian drones have been spotting, spotted hanging around those same facilities. Um, and that caused everyone to get really nervous because Russia wouldn't mind putting a few of those out of business for a while. I mean, a couple of pipe 
ships that went from Russia to Europe blew up not that long ago, and it's pretty clear that the Russians did it. Well, why did they do it? Well, because it helps bring the prices up and they continue to make a profit even though fewer people are buying from them. So if they can limit the ability for Europe to get natural gas through acts of explosives, they will do it. And when drones start hovering around Norwegian oil rigs and natural gas rigs, people are taking notice of it at this point. Um, the Norwegians have also been given a whole bunch of anti-submarine technology by the United States in the last several weeks. So these are things that are happening in the oil market that could cause the price of oil to go up. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty out there in the European area, and, and you said this before, we live in a global market. If one source of oil is limited for some reason, the number of buyers is still there. They didn't suddenly stop buying because there's less oil coming from Russia. They just have to find other sources to buy from, which causes our prices to go up. Even though we are technically energy independent, we've got to produce more to make up the difference. And it takes a while to get ramped up into that. And we're scared about ramping up too fast because it wasn't that long ago that we were we had way too much capacity on the supply side and we actually had to pay people to take oil from us the united states oil companies were having to pay money to people to come and take their oil not the other way around and a lot of people have forgotten that but right at the depths of the pandemic shutdown Oil went to a negative $31 a barrel. That means that owning oil cost more money than there was no profit there. This was, I just paid money to pull it out of the ground, but now I have to pay money again to get somebody to take it off my hands because I got no place to put it. So the oil companies remember that a lot better than the rest of us do because they had to write the checks to, I mean, can you imagine being the guy that's writing a check to someone to have them take the thing that you wanted them to buy from you, it's not pleasant. And so it's going to slow down our expansion in supply. That sort of thing always will. Okay. That was my big take on weird things in the petroleum market. Um, what do you have for the last well, five minutes of the radio program? Some bad news that is bad news. I hate to start, I hate to end on bad news, but I'm going to anyway. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics on November 3rd released its productivity and cost third quarter 2022. Sounds really interesting. The problem is that we're facing right now is non-farm business sector labor productivity. Listen to this. Decreased 1.4% over the last year. So we got less productive. Anybody that's mm -hmm. been reading news about quiet quitting, that's what we're talking about right here. People so doing price, less work. Wages are going up. Well, they're not actually doing less work, I think. Wages are going up, but pro, pro production declined per capita. Why is that? We're hiring a bunch Look, of new people. <laughs> that's it. You're, and we've talked about this before. This is, by the way, the typical thing we see at the front of a recovery, not during a recession. What we're seeing is, is people are being hired, and we're seeing these unusually high hiring numbers. When somebody comes on board right after they've been hired for a new job, 
they are not productive and probably won't be productive for six months to a year. And one or more people is being that are productive are being pulled off their productive job to train the new person who came on board so that eventually they will become productive. This is what we're seeing in the economy right now. And it is contributing to inflation because despite the fact these the 261,000 people who net who were hired in the last week in the United States are not being productive, but they're being paid more than the same position was being paid last year. They're in comes inflation. This will fix itself because we're eventually going to run out of people to hire. So we won't have those 261,000 numbers, but it's going to take a while to get there. This is one of those things why we pay very close attention to those numbers. When those numbers start to come down, we know things are starting to get better. And there are strong indications that inflation has peaked, by the way. Now, Go ahead, Jake. I'm going to throw this other statistic in there. Um, job openings increased by 437,000 at this time period that we had a net new jobs of 261,000. So mm-hmm. we're still short almost double what we added just from new openings that didn't fill the existing ones. So that those are all symptoms of a still growing economy at the same time that the tech industry, the Twitter folks and uh, you go down the list of all the big tech companies that are laying people off right now. A couple of reasons why that's not hitting the numbers yet as far as statistics at the Labor Department. A lot of those announcements took place at the end of October, and they haven't happened yet. Even the Twitter layoffs that we're seeing now that are happening this week won't actually hit the numbers for two weeks, and then they won't be looked at as a monthly number for two months. So just be aware that this is why the Federal Reserve is slowing down their rate hikes a bit because they want to see how much their changes are taking, what, what is the effect of the changes on the economy. And we're seeing it directly in the tech world right now. We'll start to see that kind of percolate out to the rest of it. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us uh, either on the air or off the air, we've got email waiting, jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com. You go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com, tpwc.com. You can find our podcasts, our radio program. You can uh, read our newsletter and sign up for it. You can contact us through that contact form. You can find our podcasts anywhere that podcasts are found because they like to hang out together, I guess. Um, in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. This is generally the longest period of time father and son here, Jeff and Jake, get to talk to each other. So until next hour, thanks for listening. This has been The Personal Wealth Guy.